first reading comes from Isaiah, chapter 44, starting at verse 12. And it's on page 720 in the Bibles. Isaiah 44, beginning at verse 12. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He rubs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of a man, of a man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I, shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, um, page 1133, in the Bibles from the foyer. I'm sorry, I need to print large print, which is why I read from paper. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse off if, sorry, we are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, how, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, 
Won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Uh, Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks and praise to you for this chance to hear your word. We thank you for these words that uh, have been written down for our benefit. And Father, we pray tonight that you'd grant us understanding of your word, that you'd help us to see what's written in there, that you'd help us to see how it affects our, uh, our godliness, how we treat one another. And Father, we pray that you would uh, teach us, that you'd rebuke us where we need to be rebuked, so that we might continue to be trained and equipped to live for Jesus our Lord. And we ask in his name. Amen. Now what do you think our church is known for in the community? What do you think our church is known for in the community? To some people we might be known uh, for carols in the park. Uh, that, that event we have at Christmas time, it's quite a public event down in the middle of the, the, um, the, the park, down in the village there. And we might be known for that. Or perhaps we're known uh, for our outreach in, in the sense of teaching SRE in schools. There's four local schools that we teach scripture in uh, every week and we might be known for that. Uh, some people might think that our, our church is known in the community for our services, things like weddings and funerals and, and baptisms perhaps. I don't know if we're that well known in the community for that or we're not well used in the community for that at least because we don't get that many requests for those things. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, you know what, I don't know if we really are known in the community. Have we got a presence in the community? Would the community miss us if we all disappeared as a church? Don't know. Uh, Do you think we're known in the community for our knowledge of theology and how we apply it to our lives? Do you think that's how we're known in the community? Or do you think we're known in the community for our love, our love for one another and our love for them as our community in which we live. This term we're thinking about our Mission 2020 priority, uh, to reach the lost people in our community with the gospel of Jesus. And today we're going to see a key principle of how we do that. And we're going to look at how that principle applies to the relationships amongst ourselves as Christian brothers and sisters. Next week and the week after, we'll take that same principle and apply it to our relationships with people outside our church community, in the broader community. What is that principle? You can see it there in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. It's right there, very clear. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. One of the greatest problems in the Corinthian church was their tendency to use their knowledge to puff themselves up and it, it sort of demonstrated itself in arrogance. And we see it right through the whole letter of 1 Corinthians. So the first four chapters at the beginning of the letter talk about divisions in the church. And in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says he doesn't want them to take pride in one man's leadership over another. Don't be puffed up, he says. Your puffed up knowledge causes you to be arrogant. Then there's three chapters on sex and relationships. And in chapter 5, verse 2, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for being puffed up 
that there was sexual immorality in the church. They were proud of that. And he says, don't be proud of that. You should be grieving that. At chapter 8, we're looking at now, and then chapters 9 and 10 and 11 in the next few weeks, at chapter 8 is the beginning of three chapters on freedom and rights and not using our knowledge to puff ourselves up but instead to lovingly build others up. And then in chapters 12 to 14, which we're going to look at in fourth term, there are three chapters on the use of gifts. And in the middle of those three chapters is 1 Corinthians 13. You might know it as the love chapter that people like to have read out at weddings. But when you actually read it in its context, it's not that sort of Valentine's Day romantic treatise you might expect on love. What Paul is actually doing is smacking them around for not being loving. He says, well, sure, you could be able to speak in tongues, that's wonderful, but if you don't have love, you're nothing more than a clanging symbol. Or, yeah, great, you might be able to prophesy. You might have enough faith to move mountains, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. Instead, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And this principle sets up the ground rules for Paul's argument in these next few chapters. The presenting issue in this chapter is meat sacrifice to idols. Now we're never told the exact question that the Corinthians asked Paul. Paul's responding to a question. We don't know what it is, but that doesn't matter. And I also suspect that few of us in this room think that worrying about meat being sacrificed to idols is a live issue for us. But again, it might not be our exact issue, but that doesn't matter either. Because while meat being sacrificed to idols is the presenting issue, underlying that are issues of the gospel. Paul is speaking about the practice of eating food sacrificed to idols, but he's also sending out a principle that applies in all areas of life. Pardon me while I get my notes sorted out. Uh, Have a look at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Paul writes, now about food sacrificed to idols. Sorry, hang on. One Corinthians 8, verse 1. (laughs) Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. You see, there's knowledge and then there's knowledge. Paul's not anti-knowledge. He says there is good knowledge. Good knowledge is is humble. Good knowledge is, is being delighted to know everything you can about God. Good knowledge is knowing everything you can about God and yet wanting more knowledge about God because you realise how much of God you don't yet know. All Christians, to some degree, are in the know because to be a Christian is to turn away from idols and turn to the living God. But knowledge isn't the be-all and end-all. And what's more important? Knowing God or being known by God. Claiming God is my friend, or God claiming me. 
You see, there is something more important than knowledge, and it's love. Because to know God is to love him too. Knowledge of God always brings with it humility rather than pride. And it's only if we love others in the church that we'll exercise our knowledge in the right context and use it to help others rather than to make ourselves look good or feel good. Knowledge alone will make us feel good about ourselves, but knowledge with love will make us want to use it to build others up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, how could this problem of meat being sacrificed to idols be solved by knowledge? Well, have a look at verse 4. He writes, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing in all the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And now there's a couple of things to say here. Firstly, an idol is nothing in the world. Now, idols, of course, do exist in the minds and hearts of many people. Uh, we see it in statues in temples and places like that, but like in Corinth, we see idols everywhere in our society as well. We've got pop idols, we've got sports idols, materialism is an idol. You see, whatever people worship with their hearts are the idols of our world. But idols are nothing. And the second thing to say is, there is only one God and one Lord. People might worship their idols with, with great passion and, and with devoted sincerity. But those idols don't exist. The Bible consistently teaches us there is only one God in all the universe. And this one true God is the creator. And he is made known through Jesus Christ, who is also our creator. So an idol is nothing in the world. There is only one God. Moreover, if you have a look at verse 8, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we don't eat. We're no better if we do. In other words, food is spiritually irrelevant. It has no bearing on our relationship to God. You see, eating a particular food will not move you closer to God. Not eating a particular food will not move you closer to God. There's only one way to be brought close to God, and that's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way that food will bring you closer to God and that is if you refuse to eat from today onwards ever again and then give it a few weeks and you'll be very close to God. But you see, knowledge leads us to understand that we are free to eat whatever we like. That's our right according to knowledge. We know an idol in the form of a statue is nothing more than a lump of wood or a piece of metal that's been fashioned into an image. That's what Isaiah 44 was all about. Meat is meat. 
A piece of meat that has been sacrificed to an idol is nothing more than a piece of meat. And that's where knowledge takes us. Eat whatever you like. However, there is a problem here for us that we need to get around. And you can see the problem in verse 7. Not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. What's the problem? Not everyone possesses the knowledge. You see, being known by God is not total knowledge of God. Some Christians who are known by God don't yet know that idols don't exist. They're still Christians. They've turned their back on idols to follow the one true living God, but they still believe those idols were real and that they exist. We know they don't, but in their mind, if they were to eat food, then that is to engage in idolatry. And their conscience tells them that if they were to eat that food, they would be doing it as an act of rebellion against God. They would be sinning against him. And can you see the problem here then? If we try to work this problem out on the basis of knowledge alone, then it might lead us down the path where I lead a brother to stumble and fall. Even though my knowledge is right, Not everyone possesses the knowledge. And so how do we deal with this problem? We've got these issues that come up. We need to love one another. We need to love one another. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. What does this sort of love look like? Well, take a look at verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin... I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. What do we do when we are faced with a situation where a brother or sister in Christ has a weak conscience about a particular issue? The answer is we show them love. We show them love. We exercise our freedom and knowledge in a way that loves and builds up the other person. Not in a way that lords it over them. Not in a way that ignores their conscience. You see, freedom is one of the highest valued rights of Western society, isn't it? Don't we love freedom and the idea of freedom we love freedom of speech we love freedom of movement we love freedom of behavior we love freedom of sexuality we love freedom to associate with whoever we want to hang out with freedom is one of the gods of the modern world but true freedom 
is only found in the service of God and consequently then the service of others. You see, just because something is my right doesn't mean it's right to exercise it. Just because I can doesn't mean I should. Christian freedom is actually one of the greatest blessings of the gospel, isn't it? Because Christian freedom means that I know that I am liberated from idols. Christian freedom means that I'm not suspicious of any food. I know there's only one God, I know there's only one Lord, and I'm captive to him. But woe to me if the exercise of my freedom causes a brother or sister in Christ to fall. In the words of Jesus, it would be better for me to tie a large millstone around my neck and jump into the ocean. If the exercise of my freedom can cause a weak brother or sister to fall, what are the consequences? They're pretty severe. Have a look. This is how serious it is. My weak brother or sister can be destroyed. That's pretty severe. I myself sin against Christ, even though I'm right, even though I have right knowledge. When I apply my rights, my freedom, my knowledge in a way that causes someone else to stumble, then I've sinned. That's scary, isn't it? My puffed up knowledge can send people to hell. That's what Paul's saying here. Is that really what I want for my Christian brother or sister for whom Christ died? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And this is so important to have a look at Paul's conclusion. He says, I would rather give up eating meat altogether than risk a brother or sister falling into sin. That's serious, isn't it? True love can be expressed by giving up your rights or foregoing your freedom in order that someone else is not forced to act against their conscience. So the principle we're looking at tonight is knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And as I mentioned before, eating meat sacrificed to idols might not be our issue. Don't write it off. You might meet someone one day for whom it is an issue and you'll need to behave in a similar way to Paul. But there are many other areas of life in which we can apply this same principle, aren't there? Lots of different ways. So if you're in the business world, what about business ethics? Do you ever force other Christians to act against their conscience for the sake of making a profit. What about the issue of consumption of alcohol? Have you ever forced a Christian to drink against their conscience? Have you ever drunk in front of another Christian in a way that pricks their conscience even if they're not drinking? Have you joked about alcohol in groups that drags other people down? Do 
Do you have friends who are Christians now but came from a past of alcoholism or alcohol abuse and, and their association with alcohol is, is linked to other forms of immorality and debauchery and things like that and when they see people drink, that's what continually conjures up in their mind. What about gossip? Do you drag your Christian brothers and sisters into conversations that include gossip or slander or put-downs that stain their conscience? A common question I've been asked today is, what about halal meat? What should we do about that? My understanding of halal meat is it's processed in a particular way. But after it's processed in that particular way, it's, it's meat. It's a piece of meat. And so I assume you're free to eat it. It's still a bit of cow or a bit of sheep or whatever it is. However, if you're going to have a meal with a friend who has converted from the Muslim faith to the Christian faith and they associate halal meat with some sort of sacrifice to the Muslim God, then I would say don't eat. And if the issue with halal meat is to do with where the profits go and what they're used for, then that's up to your conscience and your freedom to completely work that out. You see, what you buy, what you wear, where you go for holidays, they're all matters of freedom for Christians, but there are risks and the possibility that your decisions on those things could burn the conscience of a Christian brother or sister, and the list could go on and on and on, couldn't it? But here's the problem. If a weaker brother or sister sees us doing these things, their conscience could be seduced and destroyed. Even though if they join you in participating in that action, that action in and of itself is not sinful. In their mind it is sinful because they're acting in a way they know, or they think at least, is rebellious against God. And so knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Uh, how might this look in practice? Let me give you some examples. Let me give you an example of one day when I got it wrong. I got it wrong. Uh, back when I was, I don't know, 20, 22, I'm not sure, uh, there was a particular movie in the cinemas at the time. It was a bit raunchy. Uh, everyone knew that. It was very public that it was raunchy. And a few of my Christian mates, we decided, what the heck, let's go and watch it anyway. And so one Saturday night, we went down to the cinema. And as we were walking into see this movie... There was a couple of guys from the youth group in the church lining up to watch another movie. And they saw all of us walking into this raunchy movie and they gave us a bit of a look and a bit of a wave to say, hey, we know you guys are doing something we're not allowed to do and, uh, you know. To make matters worse, the next night at church he came up to me and said, well, he talked to me about it and made, made it very clear that it was it was like we were giving him permission. It's okay to watch that sort of stuff. And to be honest, even though that movie came out, I don't know, 25 years ago, there are still images from that movie that are imprinted in my brain that I wish were never there. That day I got it wrong. Here's an example where I think I got it right. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in America for Robin Nat's wedding. Uh, Rob and I, we occasionally like a drink together. Our, our drink of choice is Jack Daniels and Coke. That's 
quite lovely. And uh, we enjoy it, particularly when we're watching footy or cricket together. I can't remember a time when we've ever had, never had more than one, and so consumption's never been a problem. Anyway, in the United States, I was at the rehearsal dinner the night before the wedding. The rehearsal dinner's a big do in the American culture. And uh, there's this big dinner being held at a, a function room. At a, it was in a place like a country club here. Uh, we had a function room to ourselves. We had to get our drinks from the bar. And I thought, hey, Rob's getting married tomorrow. Let's have a drink together. And so I said to him, hey, let's, let's have a chat with Jack later on. That's our code name for it. Natalie heard that and she said, she came up to me quite quickly afterwards and she said, Dave, um, it's not a good look in the local context for the pastor to be seen drinking. I don't think you should do it. Now what do I do in that situation? My knowledge tells me that the Bible says that alcohol is a gift from God. In and of itself, there is nothing wrong with having a drink. I know I'm only going to have one drink. I know other people in the room are drinking. But I'm the pastor, from overseas, no less. And so I simply said, no problem. And I drank water and soft drink for the night. It was much wiser not to put a stumbling block in front of them, especially when I was preparing to preach to them the next day. What would Paul say in that situation? He would say this, I will never drink again so that I will not cause that person to sin. That's pretty radical. And in fact, if I lived in that community as a pastor, I would never be allowed to be seen drinking. That's what I'd have to do. I'd have to give it up. Our clothing, I think, is another potential area where this principle can be applied. Christians have freedom to wear what they like within common social restraints, of course, But you're free to wear what you like, to to wear fashionable things. That's your right and your freedom. But does that mean you should wear whatever you like? What if your clothing causes other Christians to stumble, especially in the area of lust? What would Paul say? He would say, if what I wear causes causes a brother or sister to fall into sin, then I will never wear that item of clothing again so that I will not cause them to fall. They're strong words, aren't they? Strong words. But that's what this principle is driving us to do. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up, and the consequences of love might well indeed be costly. I would find it awfully difficult to not eat roast lamb ever again. The people at Reach heard all about it on Wednesday when I did have one for dinner. It was so great. We even ate the leftovers on the night. Uh, To change the way you do business might cost you some extra profit. Choosing not to drink at certain times might be difficult. Changing what you wear for the sake of other people. I'm sure that would be hard and and isolating if you're not keeping up to date with all the fashions. But whenever we we sort of look at something like that and we, we question the cost of the sacrifice, can you remember two things for me? These two things I think are really important. The first one is this. 
When we feel like we're giving up so much for the sake of other people, we need to compare our sacrifice to the sacrifice Jesus made for us. For Jesus gave up everything, including his life, for our sake, because he loves us. When you compare the cost of choosing what to wear or whether to eat or drink a particular thing to what Jesus did for us, it pales in by comparison, doesn't it? So that's the first thing I want you to remember if you're questioning the cost of this. Secondly, if you're questioning the cost of, of, of giving something up for the sake of someone else and you think, do I really want to pay that cost? Well, let me put to you the cost of not doing that. What's the cost of not doing that? You see, if we refuse to do the loving thing by our brother or sister in Christ, then we are destroying someone for whom Christ has died. Well, how dare we do that? Moreover, we'll be sinning against Christ ourselves, even though we're within our rights to exercise the freedom we know we have. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. We need to be prepared to pay the price. What about education, you might say? If I know I'm right and the other person is weak, can't I just educate them to know rightly? And that solves the issue? Well, that's not the direction Paul takes us here, is it? That's not what Paul says. Paul didn't say, oh, about this issue with uh, meat being sacrificed to idols. Just take them aside and slap them around and headbutt them till they understand the truth. That's not what he says, is it? Maybe later at some point there will be the gaining of knowledge for that particular person, for that particular issue. But what does Paul say to us to do? He says, you must not puff yourself up. The loving thing to do for our weaker brother or sister is to give up our rights, forego our freedom and do whatever builds them up. Don't cause them to act in a way they think is sinful. Let me finish with a couple of questions for you. Uh, What do you do with your knowledge? What do you do with your knowledge? Do you use your knowledge to put down others or to lord it over them or to demonstrate that you know better than they do or do you use your knowledge to build others up in love second question how do people think of you do people think of you as a know-all or an expert do they think you're arrogant because you know stuff Or do people think of you as a loving servant, keen to see others built up and flourish? You see, love sees a person and asks, how can I help them? Not, am I better than them? Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Jesus said this, he said, love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples. At the beginning of this, I asked you, what do you think our church is known for in the community? Well, wouldn't it be great if we surveyed 100 people from the community 
And the top 100, the top answer, there was only one top answer, all 100 of them said it. We know that church by their love for one another. Wouldn't that be great? Let's finish with some prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the wonderful sacrifice he made. Father, what a cost he paid to give up his place in heaven, to become a man like us, to submit himself to the the will of sinful men who beat him to death. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ because he did that for us, because you love us so much that he would do that for our sake. Father, we pray that you'd create in our hearts a similar attitude and love for our brothers and sisters where we would be prepared to give up our rights, to forego our freedom for the sake of loving other people and building them up as disciples of Jesus. Father, we pray that as a result of tonight that you would convict us and cause us to repent of those times when we've used our knowledge or our freedom and it's caused someone else to act against their conscience. Father, please forgive us for that. Father, we thank you that Jesus died to pay the penalty for that. And Father, we pray that you would grow in us the attitude where we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility we consider others better than ourselves and that's reflected in the way that we act around them. Particularly when one brother or sister has a particularly weak conscience about uh, an issue, Father, please help us to pay the price that is necessary for their sake and not to stand up for our own rights. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.